Epigenetics Podcast Episode 9. Heterochromatin and Phase Separation. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. The topic of this episode is heterochromatin and phase separation. Our special guest for this episode is Gary Carpen from the Life Science Division at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and the University of California in Berkeley. And I'm happy to talk to you now, uh, Gary, during the EMBO workshop, Chromatin and Epigenetics. Uh, thank you, Gary, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience because they might not know you as well. Um, you got your PhD from the University of Washington. You then went on to do your postdoc at the Carnegie Institute in uh, 1991. And then you moved to the West Coast and became professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Then in 2003, you moved to Berkeley as a senior scientist. And now since 2015, you are at the UC Berkeley and mm -hmm. uh, doing your research there. Um, a question that I established now, and I like to ask this every um, guest at the beginning of uh, the podcast is, how did you become interested in biology and also in pursuing a career in science? Well, it wasn't... Um natural for me. I knew in high school that I had an interest in biology, I had a great biology teacher in high school, but I grew up in suburban New Jersey uh, in the New York area. And basically, I thought the only thing you did with an interest in biology was medicine because I, yeah. my parents weren't scientists. We didn't know any scientists. <laughs> And, um, but then when I went to college, uh, I went to Brandeis University, and in my sophomore year, I got a job in a Drosophila lab, a lab of Jeff Hall, who um, uh, a couple of years ago got the Nobel Prize for uh, shared with Mike Roshbash and, and Mike Young for uh, circadian rhythms, which I had absolutely nothing to do with. <laughs> um, but it was a great experience, and um, there were a couple of graduate students there, especially uh, Ralph Greenspan, who really encouraged me to to think about doing a uh, career in, in research. And um, then I actually went on, I, I sort of kept thinking about it. I would do MD, PhD. I couldn't quite let go yeah. of that MD part. And um, so I, I decided after college to go and be a technician. And I did that for three years before going to graduate school. And that so was it, also a really great experience. So it was not a classical academic, academic uh, career that you went starting out um, Yeah, I mean, in Europe, it's different than in the U.S. Yeah. probably. Yeah, so, so, yeah. No, I, 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 I wasn't uh, focused on research uh, until after I did it for a couple of years in, um, in Jeff Hall's lab. Well, I, mean, I started out making fly food. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do research, but by my junior and senior year, I was, I was doing research as well. And yeah. I, I should also say my sister, I have an older sister who's an astrophysicist, and I think um, she probably... Set the tone. Uh, set the tone, yes, because as I said, neither of my parents, not only were they not academics, they were not, they were not um, scientists. Um, 
And this is then probably also when Drosophila came by chance into your life, right? Yes. Because, I mean, it's following now your, your whole career, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's the model organism of choice that you have. But, um, For the most part, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so it's just by chance that you focus on, on Drosophila, right? Yeah. I learned to love it as an undergrad. <laughs> and then I, where I was a technician, was with yeah. uh, Harold Schubiger, Developmental Genetics. That was also flies. And I did... I was in a fly lab for my... Uh, What makes it so suitable for your studies? I just, um, you know, I, I, from the beginning, loved genetics. And, um, you know, the, the ability to work with an organism, uh, but be able to manipulate it genetically. I mean, now you can do so much more than 30 years ago. <laughs> but even then, um, you know, the ability to do genetic screens and, you know, this was roughly the time scale when um, Yanni Nusslein-Bolhard and Eric Rieschaus uh, identified the first um, segmentation and polarity genes in flies, and uh, Ed Lewis was working on the Pythoric complex. So there's you know, a lot of excitement about being able to use genetics to dissect different pathways. But pretty much when I became a graduate student was when I started to become very interested in chromosomes, yeah. uh, chromosome structure and function, nuclear structure and function. Well, let's just dive into the science you did, um, meaning heterochromatin. Uh, this has also been uh, already part of several, yeah, part of several other episodes, not, not the main topic, but we touched it every now and then. Um, and in a 2009 Nature publication, you investigated the connection between H3K9 methylation and heterochromatin and also genome stability in Rosophila. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, What kind of processes are involved in this um, methylation and also heterochromatin regulation, um, and how is this all regulated? Uh, well, uh, as we'll talk about later, yeah. <laughs> we have a different perspective on this now, but um, the foundations are uh, the identification of uh, H3K9 dye and trimethylation as being enriched in heterochromatic regions. Um, and I should say that when I talk about heterochromatin, I, I try to be uh, clear about the terminology because... Today, yeah, I mean, that, that's probably a, a good thing to define first, yeah, right? Yeah, because today, you know, it's pretty much any region of the genome that becomes silenced uh, is called heterochromatin. And, you know, it's, there's no right or wrong here. It's just that, that I think people end up being confused by the terminology they're using or the terminology reflects a certain amount of confusion or lack of knowledge. Uh, I know that's true for me, when, <laughs> for example, when I got into biophysics. Yeah. But um, so I, I basically go back to the sort of genomic and cytogenetic definition, which is uh, in the early, in the 1920s, Heights defined heterochromatin as a region of the genome based on staining with different dyes that appear to not decondense during interface. So meaning DAPI staining, maybe? He didn't use DAPI. Yeah. He, I don't remember. Okay, the dyes were, but this was pre, yeah. pre fluorescence. This was uh, <laughs> yeah. still using uh, like textile dyes for, uh, for uh, chromosomes. And so, um, you know, we like to talk about the pericentral mirror heterochromatin or the peritelomeric heterochromatin. These are regions that are enriched for repetitive sequences, either simple satellite sequences like AATAT, AGAG, uh, transposons, and transposon fragments. And um, so it, it sort of makes it simpler to think, for me at least, to think in terms of the genomic definition. We're talking about this particular region of the chrom of, uh, on all the chromosomes. So when you're talking about that, does it, 
when you look at the, the definition of heterochromatin nowadays, you have like constitutive heterochromatin or the facultative heterochromatin. So this will then reflect the constitutive part constitutive, of it. Yeah. 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 But I should point out that, that you have blocks of H3K9 methylation. Um, and I guess I should continue with that part yeah. of it, that that uh, interacts with a reader protein, heterochromatin protein 1 or HP1. And in turn, that can interact with the methyl transferases, such as suppressor variegation 3.9 or G9A, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, so would you consider the H3K9 maybe trimethylation as the most defining part then, or is it like the connection between the repetitive elements and also the histone marks then H3K9 trimethylation? Yeah, that defines all, the heterochromatin. It's all one, <laughs> <laughs> one big hairball. Uh, Again, as you know, we get into some of our more recent work on um, phase separation. Uh, like something I'll talk about here is that H3K9 methylation is one of many interactions that can create this three-dimensional domain, and um, so that's a distinction from just talking about the DNA and the nucleosomes. Right? Is that there are also all of these nuclear bodies or nuclear domains that occupy three-dimensional space, occupy volumes. And so that is an important part of, of heterochromatin function, we think. I would say that there's uh, no definitive evidence for that. But so H3K9 methylation and, and its interaction with HP1 is, is one of many interactions. HP1 also interacts with many, many other proteins and probably RNA uh, to help form this domain. What would you consider then, I mean, the, the repeats, uh, like those that you just mentioned, they, they seem not to have a distinct function, mm. like they do not code for proteins or any other things. So what would those functions be and why do we still have them if they don't have like this distinct function that we might look at in other regions? Well, I think we'll later get into some recent work we've done on, yeah, exactly. on satellite transcription. But in general, there are in fact, essential protein coding genes in heterochromatin. For example, in Drosophila, there's uh, the only copy of uh, uh, RAD21, the cohesin component, is actually embedded in heterochromatin. It's somewhat of a mystery that these genes are expressed despite having high levels of K9 methylation and, and HP1. But in general, heterochromatin seems to be more important for chromosome functions like segregation, the centromeres are embedded inside heterochromatin, or meiotic pairing, uh, uh, aspects of nuclear architecture as well. So it's it's a sort of complementary or different kind of function compared to protein coding. And you know there is more evidence emerging that the uh, simple satellite sequences, their transcription or their transcripts also seem to be Yeah, that, that's more of your reason work, right? Yeah. Um, another area that uh, when we um, go on a little bit um, mm -hmm. and then move maybe a little bit away from pure heterochromatin, but <laughs> but it's still linked yeah. to a heterochromatin. In 2011, you had a paper in Cell, and there you study the DNA repair connected to heterochromatin. Mm -hmm. And as this is a really densely packed Yeah, area in the nucleus or complex. How do those factors access the, the heterochromatin? Then how how do they come go there? I mean, other proteins are exclude or ex exclude from from this area, and then the DNA repair mechanisms still go there, right? Well, that's actually the the issue about exclusion is something that we're we're reassessing now. Yeah, and um, you know the classical view has been that it's a highly compacted state in a sense a brick wall. 
that, that proteins can't access. But of course they can. And many, many proteins do access the heterochromatin and, and that's likely to be because it's a very dynamic domain. It's not a brick wall. It, it's constantly in motion. And, uh, the molecules within it are constantly in motion. Um, so with respect to DNA repair, what was shocking or striking about that, and this was the work of a postdoc at the time, Irene Chiolo, um, was that the uh, double-strand breaks would actually start DNA repair inside the heterochromatin domain. And so they would do all the initial stages of DNA repair. They would be recognized as double-strand breaks, so you get phosphorylation of H2A variants, uh, and you would do resection, and you'd recruit all the single-strand binding proteins, except you couldn't recruit RAD51 or its um, loading factor, BRCA2. And so uh, it turns out that, that you do load them, but only after the double-strand breaks leave the heterochromatic domain and ultimately end up at the nuclear periphery. So meaning that the heterochromatic region that is repaired becomes more euchromatic in a sense? Or is it still different than repairing euchromatic regions? Um, well, we do think that it, it uh, from later work, um, uh, for example, involving a, a histone demethylase, we, we do think that locally they become more euchromatic-like or they go to a ground state uh, that is more euchromatic-like. Yeah, more accessible, probably. More accessible. Um, but, I mean, to me, the interesting thing is why this mechanism is in place. This is not the way that double strand breaks have to be repaired if they're in the euchromatin. And, and the hypothesis that we uh, proposed is that, you know, when you have a high concentration of these very simple repeats, and there are millions of copies of them in this one place, the last thing you want to be doing is to have a resected RAD51 coated filament <laughs> ready and able to do homology search and to yeah, evade yeah. all those. And in fact, when you remove the heterochromatin proteins, that's exactly what you see. If you remove HP1 or SUPAR39, you get massive recombination between repeats in these domains, and they, they can't even segregate out during... during so they, they cannot discriminate between what is repaired and what is not repaired? or, or what? No, they just have so many templates that they yeah, can yeah. right? And so the idea is that you separate in space and in time the initial stages of homologous recombination repair, like resection, um, but you, you don't allow them to coat, be coated with the, the protein RAD51 and associated factors that will promote homologous recombination or complete it until you're outside the domain, away from all those other repeats, and associated with either your sister or your homolog. And we, we in fact, later showed with single break systems uh, through the work of Anik Jansen that they can associate with their homolog mm -hmm. and repair off their homolog. So there's a sort of teleological, there's, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's the one thing you want to avoid with um, uh, having so many repeats. Um, so you can argue that, well, why are they there? Uh, why are they why are they conserved in evolution if they are so problematic? And so, um, if you have a double strand break in a in a normal chromosome in the heterochromatic regions and it recombines with another heterochromatic region, you create dicentric chromosomes, two centromeres. You create acentric chromosomes. Those so the stability is is affected. Genome stability becomes highly unstable, yeah. and um, so. 
it seems like heterochromatin proteins and probably RNAs have evolved mechanisms to repress that. And mm -hmm. one of these mechanisms is separating the early stages of homologation repair from the later stages in time and space. So. And you, you, you just mentioned, or earlier you mentioned that this moves to the periphery where chromatin yeah. usually is thought to locate. And you also investigated this in a later publication. How do they move there? And, and how is this uh, mechanism? Um, well, recently, Irene Kielo, who's now at, um, at USC in her own uh, position, published a paper uh, in Nature showing that actin myosin oh, yeah. complexes <laughs> help promote movement. Um, we think that that's what happens after they leave the domain. So there's no evidence that actin myosin uh, mediated movements are responsible for taking them out of the domain. Mm -hmm. um, and we think that's actually related to phase separation and what you mentioned before, which is that at double strand breaks, you become more euchromatic like. And in fact, if you lose the association with HP1 or lose K9 methylation, that you will just because of the energetics of the system uh, favor leaving the domain rather than staying in. So it's more biophysics that, that then leads to separation. And then it's actively, when it's not lo no longer associated to heterochromatin, then it leaves more easily to, yeah. to, to be then repaired because it's easier to repair it somewhere else. But it's also mediated by the factors that get recruited to the double strand breaks, including relatives of condensin and cohesins called SMC56, uh, and their associated factors as a sumo ligase, a ubiquitin ligase. They sort of form a chain of associations that lead them to associate with the, the stubble locus at the periphery, the sumo-targeted ubiquitin ligase. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You also had a publication earlier this year um, focusing on this, and you identified a histone demethylase having a role in this um, complex. Can you just comment on that a little bit? Yeah, so this was um, work from Amy, yeah. uh, Jansen, uh, who's now got a position at Utrecht, and uh, Serafin Colmenares, and um, uh, basically Serafin had previously shown that KDM4A, it's a histone demethylase, it clearly does K36, it might do K9, and it might do K56. We, and others have had a lot of problems uh, demonstrating uh, what is direct and what is indirect in terms of the demethylation activity. Regardless, uh, what they found was that um, KDM4A was required only for heterochromatic double strand break repair. It had okay. no effect. So if you get rid of it, uh, you saw no defects in the timing or the type of repair in euchromatic double strand breaks. And this was all done with yeah. single break systems, mm -hmm. not a radiation uh, that Anika developed. And um, uh, however, the heterochromatic breaks um, uh, would take five times as long to, to be repaired. And we saw a change in the frequency or the relative frequency of non-homologous end joining versus homologous recombination. And so normally there's more non-homologous end joining than homologous recombination, um, but it's the same for heterochromatic and euchromatic breaks in, in the fly system. Um, but in the absence of KDM4A, you uh, have more homologous recombination than non-homologous end joining. Would that would or does that mean that those regions get a different chromatin signature? Yeah, yeah. So, so we did look at that, and it's very difficult because the timing, 
uh, brakes, you can't really induce brakes uh, and immediately uh, be able to assess uh, histomorphic injury. But yes, what we saw was, was a change, um, loss of K56 methylation, which is another heterochromatic associated mark, um, loss of K9 methylation uh, at normal brakes, and then retention of those. So the idea is that you, you, you take heterochromatic brakes and you make them look more like euchromatic brakes, yeah, yeah. but locally. Yeah. And, and we think, though we have not proven, that that's what leads to it. The double strand brakes leaving the domain, where they then get latched on to the active myosin system, um, uh, and and also, it seems that something we're following up on is that the the methylation state affects how it gets repaired if it's yeah, by yeah. homologous recombination or by non-homologous injuring. So this is potential use. One thing we're following up on is in in genome engineering, yeah, um, and especially for engineering difficult regions <laughs> of the genome. Uh, but uh, we, we haven't demonstrated that directly yet. A uh, term that now came up uh, relatively often during our, our uh, interview now is phase separation. <laughs> and I guess, I guess it's time to, to move into this area now. Um, When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> that's that's a true. There must be a German equivalent for that, right? Yeah, I guess it's the same in, in, in German, yeah. Okay. Um, and you, you published a paper in 2017 in Nature, and this was called Phase Separation Drives Heterochromatin Domain Formation. And uh, yeah, I'm really interested in this because this is also what, what maybe yeah, drives nucle nucleolus formation and, and things like that, like um, compartments in the nucleus or in the cell that don't have a membrane or something like that. Mm -hmm. So this plays into many other different areas. But how is this uh, achieved in, in heterochromatin that, that is like behaving like a liquid when it's clearly yeah. maybe not? <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I was not trained as a biophysicist. Yeah, no. <laughs> my math and my chemistry are very poor, but I got very interested in the possibility that, that uh, phase separation, especially liquid-like properties, could impact chromatin structure and function, especially heterochromatin. When I heard Tony Hyman talk about pea granules, uh, the work that he and Cliff Brangman did uh, well, 10 years ago now, that yeah. was published. And um, I heard him even talk about 10 years ago, and it was just one of those sort of epiphany moments. <laughs> this is maybe an explanation for how, how heterochromatin works. Um, and uh, they had gone on to demonstrate that the nucleolus also has liquid-like properties. And so uh, it actually uh, <laughs> took a few years for someone okay. to pick this up in the lab. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because you know, I guess run you, my you... lab as an artist colony rather than as an army. So <laughs> <laughs> just because I want to study it doesn't mean someone else will. And people sort of made fun of it during group meetings. Uh, if, if an experiment didn't work, prior to that it was, oh, it must be epigenetics. And then after that it was, oh, it must have been phase separation. <laughs> But Amy Strom was a fantastic graduate student um, who, who picked this up and uh, essentially, you know, we have to learn what kinds of experiments yeah, to they, do they, to they, study this, especially in vivo, uh, which remains a huge challenge. Um, many proteins, it seems like roughly a third of the proteome have the structural characteristics consistent with the ability to phase separate, and many of them do it in vitro on their own, but it's a much more complicated thing in, in vivo. So... What kind of methods are we talking about here that, that you... Uh, then yeah, happen? so the main ones, um, we basically relied on, on a feature of early Drosophila development, which is that 
we were able to look at the very first stages when heterochromatin is formed, when these domains are formed. Yeah, because there is not much uh, heterochromatin present in the early development, and then right. you form, start to form it, and then, yeah. Yeah, it's not as complicated as mouse, <laughs> go, but it's uh, the first, you know, there's a system where you have nuclear divisions, there are 14 nuclear divisions, and for the first 11 or so of them, um, as Pat O'Farrell has shown, there's, you don't see K9-methylation. Yeah. At least it's not visible. And so starting around cycle 11, you start to see these little foci of HP1 forming. And uh, every mitosis, they get knocked off. This is a feature of a lot of these bodies in, mm -hmm. in the nucleus, is that they have to be dissolved in mitosis, including the nucleolus. Um, so these divisions are very short. Uh, there are six-minute interphases, uh, and then mitosis, eight-minute interphase, mitosis. So you get into cycle 12, cycle 13, you get a little longer interphase, a little longer, so you get a little more growth of these bodies, uh, these HB1 foci, and then you get into cycle 14, it's the first long interphase. It's about 90 minutes. And it's probably also because uh, when you divide, you also dilute the HP1 protein, right? Well, no, it's within a syncytium. It's one cell. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, so, yeah sorry and in that. fact, the weird thing is the HP1 level, at least measured by fluorescence, did not change throughout development. So it's probably all maternal or mostly okay. maternal. Yeah. And of course, transcription doesn't start till the late cycles yeah. anyway. So anyway, we could watch this whole process unfolding. And so the first tool was just basically utilizing the strengths of that system to look not at maintenance, which happens later, which is highly canine dependent, but establishment. And so by carefully looking at whether um, you had you know, the growth rates of these foci, the, um, whether they were circular or not. How did you image those? By immunofluorescence? Uh, yes, by immunofluorescence. And um, used either Whitefield um, deconvolution microscopy or convocal microscopy. Depending on the need, but, so you, don't, but you don't see any. If you just look at them at the light field microscope, you don't see any like. No, no. Anything. You have to, I mean, we didn't try that. Yeah. I said you probably could with phase, phase different kind of phase, yeah. <laughs> phase microscopy, not, yeah. not phase separation. So, yeah. So I mean, basically, we saw that they behaved in a way where they would nucleate, they would grow, and then what is one of the best indications of liquidity is the ability to fuse. So you have heterochromatic uh, regions on every chromosome that begin to nucleate their own little HP1 domain, uh, similar to what happens with nucleoli, where the RDNA is located yeah. and they form a little nucleolus, and then they come together and fuse into one or more um, chromocenters, as they're called. Um, and the other method that we used, was, so that was just looking and, and basically showing that they had liquid-like behaviors. Um, and then we used a, a, a form of um, FCS, fluorescence correlative spectroscopy, which allows you to um, look at uh, diffusion speeds, mobility of a molecule that's labeled with fluorescence. Um, and, and we observed that it, it showed um, features that were uh, consistent with, with phase separation as a mechanism. You will also have a talk at this conference uh, here. Yeah. Is, is this what, what you what you are going to talk about? I mean, this will be published after the conference. <laughs> Or can is there something yeah. different that you will, will talk about? No, I'm going to talk about um, uh, unpublished uh, extensions of that work uh, where we're, we're trying to address what I think is the most important question, which I won't be able to give an answer to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at this point. But I think 
Um, as you said before, there's now a lot of excitement and interest in um, liquidity and phase separation in terms of all those different nuclear bodies, polycomb bodies, uh, super enhancers now, all those sorts of things. So what I think is very clear is that phase separation plays a critical role in nuclear organization. There are many ideas that still need to be tested directly, experimentally, in vivo. But I'm personally convinced that that's true, at least for heterochromatin. Um, but what's unclear is, is whether there's a role for phase separation, a direct role for phase separation in functions of the genome. So other than the organization. So the organization itself could be important and could concentrate molecules in a way that's required for function. But is there some aspect of the biophysical properties of a body? What distinguishes the polycomb body from the HP1 body from the super enhancers, right? Is it material differences, more liquid, less liquid, um, compositional differences, viscosity, all these sort of things. And so we're trying to investigate um, uh, more on the functional side and is expressly focused on, on uh, in vivo. Yeah, that, that, that was one question that I had in mind right now is that, I mean, you have those nucleoli that form like liquid-like drops. Mm -hmm. Then you have heterochromatin that form also liquid-like drops. How are those yeah. different? Why don't they fuse? Because you have the nucleoli and you have heterochromatin around it. Yeah. How is that achieved then? No, that's that, a great question. And um, Is it different liquids? Yes. Yeah, so, so I have to learn. One of the many <laughs> things I have to learn that you, know, you sort of should have known from high school physics was not all liquids are alike. Yeah. And so you know, the key to being a liquid is you have to have um, uh, mobility of molecules or uh, there are examples of ant colonies that, that have liquid behaviors. <laughs> uh, but basically the idea is that you need to be able to contact other molecules, many other molecules, or multivalency is what it's called, and these need to be weak interactions. A strong interaction will be a solid, will end up giving you a solid. And uh, so you need to have all these molecules that are weakly interacting, and they have to have an affinity for each other. And it's not just about HP1, in the case of heterochromatin, it's about all the other things it interacts with. There are hundreds of interaction partners with K9 methylation as well. And so, yes, you have different liquids, and what makes them different, and what allows you to fuse is the fact that you have two liquids, or at least partial liquids, they have the same composition, and when they come together, they can mix. They can yeah. uh, mix together and continue this process of touching each other and, and making sure that they're in the right place uh, or associated with the right factors. But if you take, for example, a polycomb body and you try to fuse it with an HP1 body, those two sets of molecules do not have a desire yeah. <laughs> and ability yeah. to interact with each other weakly. And so that, yeah, I think that's a very exciting area that's yet to be uh, explored as to exactly what it is that makes uh, these things distinct. But you're absolutely right. If you didn't have that, then you everything would just mix together in the nucleus and you wouldn't have separate bodies. So, um, that would probably not be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good place for my last question, because yeah. in the last 30 minutes, we took a journey through your scientific career. And can you maybe give a short summary or maybe one sentence or one point that you would consider as your maybe most important finding or most stunning uh, <laughs> finding in, in your career? And what would you like to do in the future? 
Well, I would say there are two. I mean, we didn't talk about centromeres, but yeah. many years ago, uh, work that we did, and uh, along with Robin Alshire uh, working in, in Palmby, uh, 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 discovered in that the natural state of centromeres, the, what, what mediates, sorry, what mediates centromere identity and propagation is an epigenetic mechanism, yeah. not a genetic mechanism or a sequence-based mechanism that was demonstrated in, in Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And so that was that was a very exciting time, and that led to a lot of uh, very interesting uh, studies, both within my lab and especially outside of my lab. And, and now I would say the, the phase separation work um, and all the implications that it has for genome architecture, for example. The fusion, how does that regulate why and how things are together in space. Um, uh, it, it's What's exciting about it to me is that there's so many opportunities for regulation just by phosphorylating one residue or you know, dephosphorylating a residue to form these bodies, to dissolve them. And so, as I said, I mean, what we're doing now is really, um, you know, what I see doing in for the foreseeable future is to try to ask the question uh, about uh, function of the genome and and to get down into the specifics of, of of how that works and what the impact is. So Gary, thank you much for your time oh, and being you. here. It was fun. This was the ninth episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Notif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes or Spotify. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.